Pastor Lee for the privilege of being here. Um, being a pastor myself, you have no idea uh, how honoring it is for me to get to speak to colleagues from any part of the country. When I look out across a crowd like this, I'm always impacted to think of the multitudes of faces that you all, as you turn to your respective ministry areas, the multitudes of faces that are looking to you for the nourishing word of the Lord. you need to know that the very last thing that I'm here to do is try to uh, impress you with some <coughs> exploits of mine or because in, in reality there's only one impressive person here yeah. his name is Jesus yeah. preacher and loved the word of God and was convinced and I'm not, this is not a criticism of expository preaching was convinced that he just preached the right truth that things would change and after three years and by now I'm 11, 12 years old so a lot of this I remember from what my family's told me more than my actual memories but but at the end of three years, he had a bleeding ulcer that was so severe that he was admitted to Addington Hospital, uh, where in those days it was, it was so bad, all they could do was keep transfusing him, uh, which they did for a month before they let him out of the hospital. And he came home and had, we had a family meeting. All my siblings uh, were older than me. We had a family meeting and he sat the family around and he'd been a Chevrolet dealer in the little town of Peter Maritzburg in the early 30s. Uh, so he knew cars, could work on cars blindfolded. Uh, in fact, when Dad died in 1992, I went back there 
and got all of the belongings. He didn't have very much in terms of earthly belongings left my mom. I think a total of $14,000 was all he had. And living in a little rented house. And uh, he gathered the family around and he said, um, I think I'm done with the ministry. And your mom and I, sorry, your mom and I are going away for a month of prayer and fasting. And when we come back, if God doesn't do something, I'm going to go back to the motor trade. And he and mom left. Elder siblings helped take care of me. And uh, they came back after a month and very little change for the next three months until a little prayer meeting on a Friday night where about a dozen people showed up. And it was a miserable prayer meeting, according to my dad. <laughs> At the end of it, he, he said to himself, this thing's dead. Let's just give it a decent burial and we'll go home. I'm sure you've all presided over meetings like that. I have. <laughs> and so he gathered the people up front. The Holy Spirit said to him, you've been here for an hour and a half. You've done nothing but complain. Why don't you let these people worship me for a moment? And in my dad's words, with, uh, with no sense of faith, no stirring of the spirit, just sheer obedience. He sort of gritted his teeth and said to the dozen people, let's just worship the Lord. And I don't remember if he led in a hymn or a chorus or what, but, but he began to, began to worship. And, and all I can say, and I have vague memories, I've been about 11 or 12, I've got vague memories of that night. All I can say is that the heavens opened. And the presence of God that came down was so real that folks began spontaneously confessing sin. And then following confession and repentance, there would be a wave of joy and we'd worship for another bit longer. And then two of the families that had been feuding in that church for decades fell into each other's arms and asked for forgiveness of each other. And then joy came, and we worshipped. And I think that little prayer meeting got out at midnight. And a, ways, a while after my dad died, we brought my mom out to, to the States. And she had a stroke shortly after getting here and was put in the assisted living at a place called Krista, a wonderful Christian ministry there in Seattle. And I was visiting her once, and she told me this story that, that I had forgotten. She said that next Sunday, when we, we had an old 49 Ford, and for those of you that love old cars, I, I restored one about five, six years ago. Didn't do it, didn't do a frame off, but almost a frame off restoration. Those old flathead V8s. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we were talking at Pastor's house about the sound of of the Mustang, that nothing better than a flathead V8 with a slightly cut can and loping. <laughs> Get excited just And Mom reminded me that when we pulled around uh, church that Sunday, there were 200 people standing out front of the building because Dad had the keys and that he walked there early and pastor unlocked. Uh, 200 people standing on the sidewalk and spilled over into the street waiting for the building to be opened. And uh, my dad said to my mom, which I'd forgotten, look, he said, there must have been an accident. <laughs> that's, the only, that's the only reason he could think that there would be 200 people standing out front of the building. And that began, really, I left South Africa when I was 17 came to this country on a freighter, it's all we could afford. Got off the freighter at Mobile, Alabama, and took a Greyhound bus to Cleveland, Tennessee to go to school. And from from that from that prayer meeting, that Friday night prayer meeting, till long after I came to this country, there was I don't know how to explain it except there was continuous revival. 
Uh, and many of the earmarks of historical revival, with the exception that it didn't spread through that region, but many of the things you read of in historical revival happened from that prayer meeting on. 18 months after that prayer meeting, we had to move into a new uh, facility. The doesn't sound huge by today's standards, right, in this country. But we, the church was running about 700. Uh, and it was not uncommon for people to get saved in every service. I mean, real saved. Right? Uh, and baptismal services every month just to, just to keep up with the numbers of people getting saved. By the time I was a teenager, I remember one Sunday I was playing guitar in the little band that my dad had, which was kind of cutting the edge for those days. Um, and uh, it was after the Sunday service, most everybody had left. And uh, there was uh, some folks that come forward for dad to pray for them. One of them was a young man that we'd known. He was in his 30s probably then. He'd had polio as a child, and his, his withered right arm he carried in his suit coat pocket, just kind of hung there. And he came, he had the flu or something, and Dad came forward for Dad to pray for him. I'm playing in the, in the band as the, as the worship continues. And uh, all I remember is Dad lifting up his hand to pray for that man. And that arm shot out of the pocket, out of his pocket. It's the first, it was the, really, it was the most dramatic miracle that I've, that I've witnessed myself. And that arm came out uh, with the same muscle tone and everything as the, as the That wasn't a regular occurrence. It wasn't the beginning of a healing ministry. Um, but I would say the overriding, the overriding characteristic of what happened those years in my dad's church is that the presence of God was so palpable. There were as many people. We I took a, a, a video crew from Zondervan uh, back there in 2009 and interviewed some people who were in their 70s who, um, who were young people when the revival happened. And they, were, they recounted stories for us. And one lady reminded me, she said, Alec, you remember? She said, you had been about 10 years old. And the prayer meeting was as, as populated as Sunday services. Many people in the prayer meeting as on Sundays. And she said, the prayer meeting was over. Most everyone had left. There were a few people still kneeling in the front. And it was one of those old, it was an L-shaped building, right? So the main auditorium was here, the platform there. And then there was a fellowship hall with those accordion doors for, the, for overflow. She said, you got up from behind me. The name was Mrs. Jobert. She said, you got up from behind me to go to your dad's office. And she said, you got in the middle of the altar area and the power of the Lord came on you and you fell flat on your face. You began praying out loud until almost midnight before those few people in the altar area left. So I tell you that, and the reason... I was anxious for some of you to get the books, not because I'm, I think I'm a great writer, or not because I, we don't, the money from the book goes to church awakening. But some of these stories are, are in the book, and I wanted, I wanted to, to share with you why the presence of the Lord is so important to you. Of course, we know the presence of the Lord is the Holy Spirit. And it's important to me because that's what marked me of all of those years. It wasn't my dad's preaching, although I think he was an incredible preacher. Uh, I don't even remember the worship songs that we used to sing back then. Um, the building wasn't anything great to write home about. But the presence of the Lord when God's people get gathered set an appetite. Come on. That nothing else can satisfy. Not pastoring, not preaching to large or small crowds, not doing the work of ministry. Because it's been my experience that a moment in His presence can reveal things about me 
that need His touch that that doesn't happen really much anyplace else. Can change me, change my appetites, redirect me, and give me a sense of purpose that no amount of ministry success could ever provide. And it's the reason that I love talking to pastors. Because I'm fearful, because I I know my own life and history. I'm fearful that we get so busy, and particularly in the American concept of pastoring, we, there are so many demands to be so many things. I cringe at some of the seminars that I see advertised to teach you how to be a CEO. The world's got enough CEOs. The world needs shepherds that are filled with the presence of God. And so the opportunity to just share my heart with you is is why it's so moving to me. It's not because I think you can or would even want to replicate uh, what, what I've experienced, but God has such a unique way to tailor just for you exactly how He reaches you and how He moves on you so that out of the overflow of the power and presence of God inside of you comes rivers of living water. And have we ever lived in a day when this nation needs rivers of living not, not more sermons, although I preach on every Sunday, so I'm not dissing preaching, but not sermons, not flashy uh, programming. Uh, I would say not skinny jeans and smoke machines. Amen. Amen. Because I'm long past the age of wearing skinny jeans. Burn them. My sons-in-law do the best they can to keep me looking somewhat reasonable. I get my outfits approved by them before I leave town. But I want to—I want to begin. I guess I've already begun. But I, I want to begin by telling you a little story about D.L. Moody and how what God did for me in marking me when I was a teenager. How God did that for D.L. Moody in a totally different way. Uh, in the decade of 1860 to 1870, D.L. Moody was ministering, many of you probably know his life story, but ministering in Chicago and was already accomplishing incredible things in the city of Chicago. He built a huge church that was packed every Sunday people coming to hear him preach. He had a massive Sunday school with literally hundreds and hundreds of Chicago children packing into his Sunday school. He raised funds to build the first YMCA back when YMCA was a young men's Christian organization in Chicago. He preached at army camps during the Civil War with great effect. His biographer describes this decade, 1860 to 1870, in the life of Dio Moody as, quote, the bewildering interval in Moody's life when his labors savor of animal heat. What marathon exhibitions, what breathtaking activities. Of course, there's much to admire and much good came of it, but he was not yet the burning bush that the world would turn aside soon to see. His biographer continues about this period of Moody's life where he became increasingly dissatisfied. One of the first stages when you examine historical revivals, one of the first stages is a holy dissatisfaction. Sometimes it comes on Suddenly, like what happened with my dad in those three years, realizing he couldn't preach this thing straight, comes on. Sometimes it comes on gradually. Sometimes a crisis can produce a holy dissatisfaction. 
And the danger for us in ministry is that we would rush ahead to find equilibrium. It's like it's like when I when COVID first hit and I started seeing on social media pastors saying, Can't wait to get back to normal. Want to get back to normal. As if normal was anything to be desired. When we visited the Hebrides Islands in, in 2009 with that same video crew to interview people who had come to Christ in the great 1949 Hebrides Island revival, and we asked Mary Peckham, one of the first converts, what, uh, what situation was like in the churches before the revival. She said things were, and I'll never forget this phrase, things were desperately normal. And I think that's where the Church of Jesus has been in this country. Because if you if you consider preaching the important thing, we've had and have some of the best preachers in the nation in this country. Right? Um, when if you think publications and books are gonna do it, we, we pump out more Christian publications than any other place in the country. Podcasts and blogs and you can multiply it many times over. Uh, and in, in, in reality, we've got a lot of heat that's producing very little fruit. Come on. Amen. And I'm not presenting to you this morning the presence of God like some other pill we take or like some other remedy. I'm presenting it to you this morning, hopefully, as a lifestyle. Yes. That can bring can help you weather whatever's coming ahead. And this holy dissatisfaction started to be birthed in in Moody, not because of failure or despondency, but as a result of incredible success and the emptiness that comes with success in ministry that's somehow devoid of the presence of the Lord. The biographer continues, and I just got these quotes for you. He looked into the gloom of his soul and was amazed to find that his unrest arose from the performance of the very work for which he so, so stoutly affirmed his love. I wonder, and I can say this has been true in my life and seasons, I wonder how many of us are pastoring because we love the thought of pastoring and being needed and wanted. And what will happen to us spiritually and emotionally when the phone stops ringing and we're not sought after for advice or counsel or encouragement. And unfortunately, one of the downsides is that we can develop a need to be needed that's a dead-end street for ministry. Two ladies in the congregation in Chicago made Moody nervous the way they looked at him during their prayers. He knew he was deficient somewhere, and he knew they knew it. <laughs> they kept telling him they were praying for him, just as if he were a sinner. They got completely under his skin. He who had the largest congregations in Chicago and so many conversions. Could anybody do more for God than he was doing? But his spirit found no rest and he miserably knew something was wrong. After visiting Spurgeon and George Mueller in England, trying to find some relief for his anguish of heart, he prayed, Oh God, have mercy. There's something wrong with me. Correct me. I'd rather die than go on like this. Some of us can imagine feeling that way and have felt that way because of struggles and failures in our ministry. He's coming from, the Lord's bringing him to his place of despair from a totally different angle. Holy desperation. Holy desperation. If you're interested in the second stage of revival, is that out of that holy desperation, a protracted ministry of prayer is embarked on. By those who catch a vision of what could be. Come on. Come on. Good. Ooh. 
if you're not trying to promote anything, but if you're interested in the stages of revival or the characteristics, and I'm talking about historical revivals now, then I just please go on churchawakening.com. And they're there, they're downloadable, they're in PDFs, use them, take them as your own. Uh, The Lord's given us the same heart as Pastor Lee. We're not here to build anything or accumulate anything. Um, We just want like Peter and John right at the temple. And you're the same way I know. We don't have silver and gold, but what we have, we're willing to give. Then one day he found in a message published by Charles Spurgeon in London a clear discernment of the trouble. Quote, I'm bound to say, this is Spurgeon now, if Christ's servant be not in the power of the Spirit, then his works become bondage, and he feels forced to do them. From that day on, Moody began to pray, Oh God, give me the Holy Spirit. And right after that happened, the fire of 1871 destroyed the whole city of Chicago, including all the buildings that he built. So now, if you can imagine with me, right? Now all of these edifices to his ingenuity and hard work are leveled in the ashes, and Chicago's leveled. He's got no place to ministry and literally no place to even build or rebuild yet. So he goes to New York City and is invited to preach in a mission in New York City, still tormented in his soul until one night in November of 1871, he's walking the streets of the city of New York, crying out to God to fill him with the Holy Spirit. Then that night in the mission, quote, a ravishingly sweet fire of God came down all at once. He'd never been drunk with wine in his life. But now he knew the exaltation. After the service, as he walked home, every step, one foot said glory. And the other responded hallelujah. (laughs) He stopped in the sidewalk and sobbed. Oh God, compel me to walk close to you always. Deliver me from myself. Take absolute sway. Anoint me with your Holy Spirit. The biographer continues, God heard him and gave him right there on the street what he begged for. And God made his soul like an artesian well that could never fail of water. After Moody's life and ministry and the transformation of the spirit, he wrote, I do not know of anything that America needs more today than men and women on fire with the fire of heaven. And I have yet to find a man or woman on fire with the Spirit of God that's a failure. My dear friends, if you don't have this fire, make up your mind you're going to have it. Pray, oh God, illuminate me with your Holy Spirit. This is not a theological distinctive that I'm promoting. Even though those of you who, who know anything about my background know that I'm a classical Pentecostal, and I'm not ashamed of that or I'm not backing away from that. However, this is not about, in fact, I, I feel the favor that the Lord has given us in, in the Pacific Northwest, interestingly, is not with Pentecostal denominations. The favor God's given the ministry of Church Awakening is literally with Methodist and and, uh, Presbyterian and Episcopalian and Anglican and Nazarene. um, It's sad to say, but uh, most of the Pentecostal, traditionally Pentecostal denominations and churches in the Pacific Northwest have all gone sort of seeker sensitivity and and have turned their back, unfortunately, tragically on the heritage of the Holy Spirit. But I really feel, and I feel like I need to say this wherever the Lord gives me the privilege of speaking, that I don't, I'm not here, my, my ministry and mission is not to Pentecostalize people. That's up to the Holy Spirit and, and his, your journey with Him. My mission is to introduce you in case you haven't yet, and it's interesting, may not be the case in the South. When we've gone through some hard times up there in Seattle, 
You don't know how many times I've complained to the Lord. Why why did you put me in Seattle? Why couldn't I pastor in the Bible Belt or someplace where people sort of understand these things? A lot of times in the Pacific Northwest, I get this glazed over look. What do you mean we need revival? We're doing okay, you know, but... But uh, my mission is to, is to say to pastors and anyone willing to listen that there's so much more to this Christian walk than simply an intellectual assent to doctrines or dogmas or the pursuit of ministry methodology. We need another, another seminar on ministry methodology like we need a hole in the head. I took, a, I took a graduate class years ago with Eugene Peterson and uh, up in Canada, the university where he was. And uh, he had us read a book called The Art of Pastoring. I forget, the, I forget the name of the author, David Hanson, I think it is. The Art of Pastoring. And it's a, it's a rural pastor who pastored two congregations in rural uh, Montana. And when he took this, this parish, the pastor that he followed had walked away not only from pastoring, but walked away from the faith. And again, I don't know how many of you are on social media. I'm not suggesting you get on social media. I, I go on just really to see what other people are thinking around the country. And it's very alarming. But, but, um, he took, what I was going to say about social media is it's alarming to me how many prominent Christian musicians, pastors, and, and thought leaders are, are publicly walking away from the faith, dismantling their faith and walking away. Uh, this pastor in Montana had done that. He'd left the faith, and so much so when he left his study in this one parish, he walked away and left his library behind. And the author who took his place and wrote a book about it said it was curious to him that on the bottom row of the bookshelf of this pastor, literally leading to the door that the pastor walked out of and exited, were binders of all of the seminars he'd been to about how to have a successful ministry. And obviously he had tried them all and found that while maybe they were God's word to a pastor in California or in Chicago or whatever to do what they were doing there. It was not something to be replicated by other pastors and leaders as if it was the key to success. And apparently he tried them all, found them not bringing success and walked away from ministry at all. We had the privilege a few weeks ago of having Stephen Meyer uh, at the church to do a Sunday evening on intelligent design and how more and more things that are being discovered in the universe point to the absolute necessity of a divine loving creator. It's marvelous, but very intellectual. I understood 10% of his answers. <laughs> and we talked at dinner afterwards and he was telling me how many Words in the book of Acts used to describe Paul's ministry, especially in Athens and Mars Hill and in other places, come from a Greek word, apologia, a Greek word that, that means giving a defense, offering a defense, and that he feels like a lot of Paul's preaching was apologetics and offering a defense. And please, I, I love it. I love apologetics. But I reminded him, I reminded him that in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Paul says to them, I didn't come to you with wise and persuasive rhetoric, but I came to you with a demonstration of God's power. And I believe the only way to, to having God's power is a personal intimacy with God that we as pastors and Christian leaders would carve like the apostles said in Acts chapter 6, 
We love taking care of tables. We love ministering to Greek widows here. We know how necessary it is. And the word says we're supposed to take care of widows. It's true religion. But we've got to devote ourselves to prayer in the word. And somehow we've got to get back to that place where A, our hunger for the presence of God, which again is the Holy Spirit. The, those are in, I'm using those phrases interchangeably. The presence of God is not just some. Uh, in fact, one of the one of Stephen Meyer's answers to me, and I want to have lunch with him to pursue this a little further. I don't feel intellectually up to having a debate with him, but he said to me, "Well, he doesn't. He doesn't give. He doesn't give much credence to subjective experience." And I want to answer that, even though, again, I don't think I've got the chops to to go one-on-one with them, but I want to answer that. If you think there's any more trouble in the Christian world that's come from subjective experience than intellectual pursuits, I think you're wrong. I think we've gone down as many rabbit trails and dead ends with intellectual pursuits. And, And so I'm not saying you cut off your brain. Because the Bible says, be renewed by the transforming of your mind. So I'm not saying it's, but I, I, I get worried by an American church that is so cerebral and so afraid of experience. Yes. When we were designed, we're made in the likeness and image of God so that we could identify with His person and His being. with Him that alone is that fountain of life that we need for our marriages and we need it to raise our kids today. We need it in ministry today. We've got to tap into that fountain. I'm reminded of a dry spell I went through about a year ago and had gone on for a couple of months and I I couldn't, couldn't find any sin Anywhere that I could attribute to having grieved the Holy Spirit. But I was just dry. Preaching felt dry. Um, and I remember leaving my bedroom one morning, walking into my little study we have at home. Got a recliner in the corner. And I remember plopping down in that recliner, just saying, God, I'm, I'm desperate for you this morning. And I distinctly, it wasn't an audible voice. I heard him say, I've been here waiting for you. (laughs) I never want to be so distracted. I never want to be so satisfied with whatever we might, the current measure of success may be, as to forget that he's waiting. And he loves our intimacy more than I do. And he welcomes that intimacy. And he wants to say over you, like he said over Jesus, I'm convinced it's the same spirit. He says, this is my son, you're my daughter. And in you, I'm well pleased. Not because... Not because we performed a perfect performance of life or ministry. We couldn't do it with a thousand lifetimes. But because of what he's done for us. I don't think we will ever comprehend the delight he takes when we draw near to him and say, I just want to be with you. I just want to be with you. Not looking for a sermon today. Not looking for an answer. I got a lot of questions. I do have a lot of questions. I long to see more miracles than we're seeing. Not for our sake. Don't care if it happens when I lay hands on people. Just want it to happen. And, and I'm not God. Obviously, we all know that. But but if I was God right now, I wouldn't I wouldn't do it for any individual. We have such a horrible track record in this in this country of making superstars out of people that are just flesh and blood. And it's the beginning of the end when that happens. I'd love it if God would just start healing people in our services. I, I remember when the revival fell in Cedar Rapids. One of the very first things that happened, and I may have time to tell you some of that story 
uh, in another session, but when the revival happened in Cedar Rapids after two and a half years there, and at, both, at that point, I guess I'm telling some of the story, at that point I was enamored with church growth. You'd, you'd have thought that what I learned in my childhood would have stood me in good stead and I would immediately know the answer is the presence and power of God. But no, I'd had my head turned by church growth movement and I'm not speaking ill of it, although it may sound like it, but I read all the books and I, my first shot at pastoring, I was going to push all those buttons and we were going to be successful. And my first senior pastor was Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And we pushed all the buttons for two and a half years until I got to a place of desperation. Then I realized, wow, I've missed what I learned in my dad's trip. But the first Sunday that the presence of God fell on that church, I was leading worship in those days. That's how desperate we were for worship leaders. And uh, I was leading worship, had my eyes closed. Church of about 300 people had my eyes closed. And all of a sudden, my wife Rita is standing next to me. And I wish I could remember this lady's name, but she, she had a lady with her. And she obviously started talking to me. The congregation kept singing. And this was one of the sisters in the church who had been diagnosed with a brain tumor that somehow had escaped into her nasal passages. And she had two big blue lumps on either side of her nose and was scheduled that Monday for brain surgery. And all I heard my wife Rita say was that while we were worshiping, she felt a warmth in, in her face and instinctively reached up and felt, and those tumors were gone. And she was, she was, she was just beside herself. Uh, obviously, the service stopped. We went straight into worship. And I don't think we got out of worship that whole service. Um, but that next Monday, she went to the University of Iowa Hospital down the road from Cedar Rapids where she was scheduled for surgery. And they did an MRI and confirmed. The doctor said, I've never seen this happen before. Uh, so she said, would you would you write that this was a miracle? He said, I wasn't there, so I can't do that. But I will uh, confirm that the, the tumor is no longer there. You don't need surgery. And from my, from my thinking, that'd be a wonderful way. But, but God, would you send a wave of miraculous power in our church that intersect people's lives? So I know you're, you're, you pastors are suspicious because I haven't gotten to my text yet. Uh, would you turn with me? This won't take long. That's what Elizabeth Taylor said to her last husband. <laughs> Exodus 33, and I'm just going to touch on this because it just kind of sums up and gives you a textual understanding of what I've been sharing just from my own life. Uh, you know the setting, right? Many of you preached this. Uh, the Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days with God. He comes down the mountain, they've made the golden calf, it's a mess, the people are judged uh, by God, and then verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. Stop reading right there for just a second. I want you to see just quickly in this text five things. And I haven't, I haven't figured this out. If you guys have got better commentaries than me, you've got to, I'd love, seriously, I'd love to hear thoughts you have on this passage. But I see five elements of progress that God seems duty-bound to give His people because simply because He's promised it to them. And I wonder how much of this applies to the church of Jesus Christ in this country right now. 
Too many of whom have walked away from the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and are just operating out of a, a fleshly energy. And the five things I see, if you're, gonna, if you're just jotting anything down, the first thing I see God tell Moses and the Israelites, I will give you forward progress. Leave this place, leave this place, and go up to the land. And, and there's something, I don't know if it's my type of personality, but I, I hate the thought of stagnation. We, we were kind of stalled out in 2016, ministry-wise. And I led a couple of a couple of elders in our church who were more business people than they were godly men, but but had a very business. They were sort of high flying business, successful business people. And they got in their mind in 19, 2016 that since I was in my you know late sixties, approaching seventy, that America was churches were doing better with younger pastors, and it was time for me to pack it up and 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 go into retirement. And uh, they said this consistently enough, not that bluntly, but they said this consistently enough that that I uh, I was buying into it. And my family, my kids, my two daughters and sons-in-law and my wife would say, no, no, you're not done yet. And I would just, have pastors listen to me, I would just dismiss that because the reason is they love me and they've got to say that. So I wouldn't pay any attention to it. Okay. Rita, my wife even had a word from Ezra. Where, where, where the people say, that, where the leader says to Ezra, maybe it's God, I'm not sure, but, but says to Ezra, the people are with you, go, go do the work. And, and Rita really felt she heard from the Lord, I dismissed it. So in my mind, 2016, we've kind of stagnated, the church isn't growing, ministries are doing well individually, but, but I can only conclude that it's, that it's my fault, the buck stops. With the senior pastors, my fault. And so these guys are right. I need to I need to quit. I'll go. I'll go find a job at Walmart. Saying welcome to Walmart. I'm just <laughs> right. But I bought in. And uh, why? Because I hate stagnation. And it's not even numerical growth necessarily, but the sense that we're moving with God. That God has a promise and a plan, and we're moving with Him. And uh, I, maybe I'll get into the details of the story later, but, but uh, uh, an Ethiopian pastor from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, who knew of the Pacific Northwest because he'd been there 25 years earlier, but had a trucking business out of Fort Lauderdale. Listen, the guy's amazing. He would take loads to cities. We're doing okay on time. We take, he'd take loads to cities where he knew there were Ethiopian and Eritrean churches drop the load, that would pay for him to stay three weeks, minister to the Ethiopian churches in that area, go back to Fort Lauderdale, get another load. And he knew of Westgate, just because he lived in that area when he was in the Pacific Northwest, knew one man at Westgate Chapel, a friend of mine, John Brediger, who's a landscape architect, knew one man. And calls that one man, happens to be on the day that... John Brediger and I are digging ditches in my house to put sprinklers in. Because I know if I'm retiring, I've got to sell my house. First thing I've got to do. So we get the house ready to sell and put the sprinklers in. And John Brediger gets a call from Pastor Haile Monterey. And he said, does your pastor believe in words from the Lord? And John said, uh, yes, I think so. He said, well, God gave me a word for him two weeks ago. And I had to wait till I got a load to Portland. And my truck's in Portland. I rented a car. I'm downtown Seattle. Can you get me together with him? And again, I may, at some point in this weekend, I may share the details with you, but he sat me down for an hour and read my mail. Didn't know me from Adam. And the first thing he said, indelibly in my mind, you're tired and you want to quit. But God says, if you quit now, you'll be worse than tired. So I knew and actually what that word did, it went on for an hour. It relit a fire in me. And honestly, I'm not doing this to fish for response, but honestly, I feel more like Caleb now. I may be, I'm not 85 yet, but I feel more like Caleb Give me this mountain. We don't have any time to waste. We got no time to lose. This nation is going down the tubes. We need a church on fire. Yes. 
says to Moses, I'll give you forward progress. Second thing he promises is an inheritance. I'm going to give, go up to the land that I promised to Abraham and Isaac. So he's a faithful God who will give you forward progress. And he'll give you even some of the inheritance that he's promised you just because he's faithful. And I'll send an angel before you. Maybe a little bit of a stretch in interpretation, but I interpret that as signs and wonders. I'll give you signs and wonders. Number four, I'll drive out the Canaanites, etc. I'll give you victory over the enemy. And number five, it'll be a land flowing with honey, milk and honey. I'll give you a measure of prosperity. And I can see all of the people of Israel saying, oh, that's what we've been waiting for. Point me at it. But then those stunning words, those chilling words, but I'm not going to go with you. And I love Moses' answer. Oh, God. If you don't go with us, and I'm not moving from this mountain, I'm staying right here. Because unless you go with us, what will make, what will differentiate us from all the peoples of the, around us in the world? And unless you go with us, how will people know that you are pleased with us? I want to suggest to you, pastors, I wrap up this morning. That it's not how great a preacher or orator you are. It's not how big your building is. It's not how many people you've got coming. But if he's with you, if his presence is with you, then people will know God's pleased with you. And it will set you apart for the kind of work that he has for his kingdom. One last thought. When Winston Churchill was given the assignment, not just over the war cabinet, but to be prime minister in the first days of World War II, the first speech he gave, he said, the King of England has not summoned me to this position to preside over the demise of the British Empire. And I want to say to you, the King of all kings has not summoned you to your places of ministry to preside over the demise of his kingdom. Because the gates of hell will not prevail.